0: Welcome to Engaging the Experts, a series of interviews with pharmacy practitioners and educators on cutting-edge topics. In part 1 of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview, William Zelmer talks with Curtis L. Triplett, Susan Cornell, and Joshua J. Newmiller. They discuss barriers to optimizing the use of insulin and in managing patients with type 2 diabetes. This installment is produced by ASHP Advantage and supported by Novo Nordisk Incorporated. This is William
1: Zelmer for the ASHP program, Engaging the Experts. I'm speaking with Curtis Triplett, Susan Cornell, and Joshua Newmiller who presented a session on treating type 2 diabetes at the 2016 ASHP major clinical meeting. Dr. Triplett is Associate Director in the Diabetes Research Center at the Texas Diabetes Institute, and Associate Professor in the Department of Medicine in the Division of Diabetes at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. Dr. Cornell is Associate Director of Experiential Education and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Midwestern University Chicago College of Pharmacy in Downers Grove, Illinois. Dr. Newmiller is Vice Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacotherapy at Washington State University College of Pharmacy in Spokane. My thanks to each of you for agreeing to participate in this discussion. I think listeners would be quite interested in hearing you talk about your own personal story. What led you to uh, working with diabetic patients as a major part of your professional focus? Curtis, would you begin please?
2: Sure, my pleasure. I actually started uh, thinking about diabetes as a career, I think when I was the VA in Madison, Wisconsin. My first job actually happened to be half in a COEG, or in a Coumadin Clinic, and half Diabetes Clinic. And to be honest with you, I just fell in love with the diabetes part of it. From there, the Texas Diabetes Institute, which is a regional a place kind of one-stop shopping in San Antonio, opened up. And I moved there and have never looked back for the last 18 years. Sue,
1: what is your story in this regard?
3: Well, mine tends to be a little bit more personal In the mid-90s, my mom was actually diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at the time. And, of course, uh, for folks who don't know, this was before all of the landmark trials were actually released, and we knew what we know today about diabetes. Um, So back then when my mom was diagnosed, I quickly realized that she wasn't really receiving optimal care, and it kind of made me a little anxious and a little nervous. So I began to pursue more education within diabetes, as a practicing pharmacist and then as soon as I uh, gained more knowledge I started to realize that you know what my mom's not the only one who's not receiving optimal care and so this led me to of course become much more involved in diabetes and diabetes education so that I could provide better care for not only my mom but of all the patients that I
1: I do work with. Well very interesting. Uh, Josh um, how about you?
4: Yeah, likewise to Sue. uh, Very personal reasons really drove me into working in diabetes. I was on a very different track after I graduated pharmacy school, and within the year of graduating from school, I I actually was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 25 and totally changed my focus. Uh, I went through that initial overwhelming feeling of being told I had type 1 diabetes and went through some of the struggles of trying to learn to use insulin and really led me to desire to work with people with diabetes and kind of share not only some of my own experiences, but work through some of their difficulties as well, trying to lead them towards better control. And so then I went and started working at where I am now, Washington State University, and I've been fortunate to work in home care where I can go into people's homes and and work with them on their medication management and also be involved in clinical trials for treatments for type 1 and type 2 diabetes.
1: Well, thank you. uh each of you for sharing those your stories. So it's quite interesting. Uh, Curtis, let me ask you sort of a general question here, and I think the listeners will be interested in this. You know, as a chronic illness that develops over time, to what extent can type 2 diabetes be prevented in pre-diabetic patients?
2: Well, one one of the things to remember is that diabetes has two major inputs as far as your risk of diabetes. One is genetic, uh, which we can't do anything about, but this is why we talk about your first degree relatives, you know, brothers, sisters, uh, parents, and genetically if you have a mother, father that have diabetes, your risk over your lifetime is quite high. The other part of it though is what we always concentrate on as far as trying to help our patients, and that's the environment. And the environment has to do, of course, with obesity, diet in some ways, mostly high-fat meals if you're wanting to take one component, uh, exercise, and of course some other things too as far as fiber, and putting those all into kind of a A mixer and then getting your risk out the thing is is that by concentrating on helping them to lose weight seven percent of weight loss is what is recommended from the a trial called the DPP and just really looking at um, trying to prevent diabetes you can decrease your risk of diabetes uh, quite extensively medications can do it even further the best medications out there so far with the highest rates of decreasing risk have to be the GLP one receptor agonists and the TZDs, though the one that most is mostly prescribed is metformin, which showed about, over three years, about a 31% reduction in your risk of diabetes. If you just look at someone and say, what's gonna happen to you over the next five years, about a, a third of the people will go on to get diabetes, a third will continue to be pre-diabetic, and a third will go back to be normal. So we have to somehow tease out how to make those people that are gonna go on and progress and put them on the medications and the, the dietary and lifestyle interventions that prevent diabetes. It is very preventable uh, if you can implement some of those or at least delayable would be a better term, if you can implement some of those things that I had just mentioned.
1: Right, okay. Well, the session you all presented at the major clinical meeting had to do with the appropriate role of insulin therapy in type 2 diabetes. Josh, could you comment on what the appropriate role is as expressed in authoritative treatment guidelines? And then also, to what extent does actual clinical practice conform to the guidelines with respect to the use of insulin?
4: yeah thanks for the question bill and And really, I guess I would start off by highlighting our two main um, guidelines that we really look at, so first being our ADA standards of medical care and diabetes. so this is put put out on an annual basis from the American Diabetes Association. and then we also have our our recommendations that set forth by our clinical uh, ACE guidelines, and really both guidelines Yeah, they provide options uh, for the clinician to really consider as people progress and require additional intensification of therapy. The American Diabetes Association Standards for Medical Care and Diabetes, they highlight the use of basal insulin really starting as an option for people once they get to dual therapy and certainly intensification of that insulin as they progress past that point. So really anybody that doesn't meet goal with metformin monotherapy, they at least put basal insulin forth as a potential option for intensification. And one of the things to consider with these particular guidelines is they actually give a variety of different options and some potential considerations for intensification based on patient-specific factors such as if you particularly want to avoid hypoglycemia or if you're considering weight effects of the medication. So they give a variety of different considerations. And with certainly insulin being one of those, same is true for ACE guidelines. So they provide basal insulin as an option from dual therapy on as well. With the ACE guidelines also suggesting that if someone has an A1C above 9%, So they're particularly in poor glycemic control with symptoms, they actually recommend starting insulin at that point in time, at least until that blood sugar is under better control and folks aren't as overtly symptomatic with hyperglycemic symptoms. So I think one of the main things here is these guidelines they do provide basal insulin and intensification of insulin as options but really it's there's an ability for the clinician to really look at patient specific factors when making such decisions so when really Answering the question of to what extent does clinical practice conform to the guidelines, it's a little difficult to answer because the guidelines aren't really 100% prescriptive in terms of when somebody should be started on insulin. Although I would say uh, in, in my opinion and in my experience, uh, a lot of people with type 2 diabetes they could benefit greatly from basal insulin, and they have the addition of a variety of different orals when, in fact, a basal insulin might be the best option for them. So I think with some of the addition of some of our newer basal insulins and other insulin products, I think people follow the guidelines, really trying to achieve the best outcomes for their patients, but I think Uh, In many cases, uh, insulin therapy is is delayed longer than maybe would be best for the patient. And this is due to a variety of things uh, that we could touch on, such as clinical inertia and some other barriers to insulin as well.
1: So at least from some perspectives, that there seems to be a gap between actual clinical practice with respect to use of insulin and what the treatment guidelines are suggesting. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, I would agree with that, Bill. Okay. What can you say about, uh, in addition to what you've already said, Josh, about maybe some of the reasons for this gap, the cause of this gap? I think some of the
4: cause for this gap is really comes down to some of the barriers uh, that are in place that really lead towards the delay of insulin use, and that's on part of both patients as well as providers. So patients may have barriers to wanting to start insulin use, such as fear of starting injections. Maybe they have... negative experience with a family member in the past that started insulin and then started to have complications. And in their mind, they link the two. And then on the provider side, certainly when we start somebody on insulin, um, it really increases the acuity of the amount of attention these people need. So, there's a time commitment. And then often providers also have additionally some of the same fears and cautions that the patients have in terms of causing weight gain in patients Maybe fear of hypoglycemia associated with insulin therapy. I guess the thing that's often not appreciated is with some of our newer basal insulins in particular, we have uh, much less risk of some of these complications if we start with appropriate doses and are diligent in terms of our titration. And uh, I don't know, Sue, do you have anything to add?
3: You know, Josh, I would completely agree with what you say. And, you know, having worked with primary care providers as well as specialty in endocrine, I can tell you that a lot of the primary care providers are just so overwhelmed and so busy. And, you know, they kind of are the jack of all trades, master of none and you have the patient coming in with so many complexities, comorbidities to diabetes, that they don't know which guideline to follow and they kind of just use what they're comfortable with or what their training has taught them. And so tackling insulin becomes a challenge because like you've already mentioned, it requires a little bit more diligence and care, monitoring for the patient. And oftentimes providers are a little bit leery to start that path because, you know, they want to be involved in it and they just don't have the time. So to me, I think one of the nice things is this is where this team-based care approach, uh, which of course includes pharmacists, is so critical because by having the pharmacist take on some of this responsibility of monitoring and following up with these patients that are on insulin, it allows that opportunity for the patients to get earlier insulin use, better quality care and still the attention that they need without time restraint on it. So, you know, I see the barrier sometimes just being that people are afraid to jump in and do something, but when you have the team approach, it really, really takes that barrier away.
1: Curtis, do you have anything to add?
2: Well, they did a very good job of of covering all the, the common things. My two cents is I often see that time is, is a big barrier here because from a provider standpoint, what often happens is I'm asked to see a patient in 10 minutes and uh, especially someone who has diabetes, they may have hypertension, dyslipidemia, maybe they're having a little bit of pain in their feet and they have hyperglycemia and I as a clinician am expected to do four different uh, interventions and in, in 10 minutes it's impossible. Uh, And so what happens is that sometimes the delay in clinical inertia is simply time. I know they probably need insulin therapy. I broach the subject the first time I see them and then what happens is that they're not really receptive but then the next time they come in sometimes they are because we've talked about how to improve their glucose and they haven't done it and so the Just my point is clinical inertia comes in so many different shades of gray. And sometimes, you know, I see primary care doctors talking about time. Now, from a specialty standpoint, uh, which is where I practice, we don't have that problem as much. We do have a longer time to see the patients. And we also have educators. And most primary care doctors do not have educators, which is one of the things I think is important. We we tend to uh, discount the ability of pharmacists to take up this role of starting insulin therapy, but there's just not enough diabetes educators around. You know, I always advocate for a pharmacist to get involved with uh, insulin starts. I think it's one of those places that we could really add a lot to the equation.
1: Well, this term clinical inertia has been mentioned by you a couple of times uh, as a factor that leads to intensification, or rather delays in intensification of insulin and other uh, diabetes therapies. Sue, could you elaborate on exactly what we mean by clinical inertia and perhaps comment a bit on what can be done to overcome this phenomenon?
3: Yeah, it's really, you know, a great question and, and a timely topic, especially as we're seeing as Curtis started out talking about this growth in pre-diabetes patients, third of them going on to get full-blown diabetes, and, and how can we prevent this? A lot has to do with this clinical inertia, and I think it even migrates into this pre-diabetes category as well. Because the earlier we can make a difference, the better it is for the patient. And you know, clinical inertia, just simply put, is we know something's wrong, but we're not doing anything to fix it. Yeah, and that's a huge problem. You know, because something's broke, but nobody's fixing it. This is an opportunity. For again, this team-based care to really make a difference because oftentimes patients, their A1C is not at goal. They're above goal, and they're well above goal, one or two percentage points above goal, and nobody's doing anything. And it is kind of, you know, everybody is at fault here, and myself included, when I meet with patients, and, you know, they might have an A1C of 8.5, and we do have this topic of changing their meds, and the patient will say, oh, well, you know what, I'm going to try really hard to do my diet this time. I know I can do it. I know that'll make a difference. Or I'm going to try really hard to exercise. So they want to approach that lifestyle change to avoid going on to intensification of therapy. And they're looking at that intensification of therapy as failure on their part. And I think that's where our problem is. It's not that the patient failed it's that the disease is progressing. And so, again, this early intervention can really make a difference for many of these patients. You know, And too often time, we just agree with the patient. Oh, okay, we'll give it another three months and see how you're doing. And then nothing gets done and the A1C goes up. So I think having that conversation earlier on with the patient and letting them know they did not fail. Failure is not their fault. And we need to maybe intensify, but if it improves, we can then cut back. So, you know, it's not an all-or-none thing, it's kind of a fluid course here with medication adjustments, and I think patients don't understand that.
1: Sue, I wonder if you could take that just a little bit further and maybe comment on any special techniques that can be used uh, to help patients decide to use insulin when such use is clearly indicated.
3: Yes, I could be here all day telling you stories, but I'll, I'll sum it up very quickly. You know, oftentimes I open up the conversation with the patient, so what is it about insulin that has you worried? Or what is it about insulin that you don't want to start it? So letting them explain to me what their fears are and then having that conversation to help them realize insulin isn't a bad thing. You know, sometimes it's, well, it's an injectable, but you hardly will feel it. And, you know, so having them actually maybe even take a dose right there in the office, and oftentimes, you know, especially today with the pens, you don't even feel the needle anymore. And so when we work with our patients and we're talking to them and we have them actually inject right there in the office, they're like, wow, this is great. I didn't even feel it. And, you know, they're willing to give it a try. And sometimes one of the techniques I use is, what are your thoughts about trying insulin for one week? And they don't even know how to respond. You mean I don't have to stay on it? you know well maybe maybe not obviously you know if we get you under control we may be able to cut back the dose or or discontinue it and having them understand maybe there's a finite time that they need to use insulin to get their diabetes under control actually has made a lot of improvements so that's one of the techniques I use Josh how about you
4: No, I really like what you said, Sue, and uh, I I think the trial and letting them know that really, you know, we are listening to what they have to say, Um, really doing some of that initial interviewing, understanding what their fears and are, but also trying to understand what their motivators are, you know, if somebody, um, you know, they talk about just wanting to feel better and then you can introduce, you know, hey, hey, let's try insulin for a short period of time. If you don't like it, we could look maybe at some other options in the future, but often I find that it's less invasive than they anticipate. Some of their fears will dissipate with that trial and then they feel better and then you're in a much better position to kind of reevaluate their goals and move forward. with their insulin therapy. So uh, definitely uh, agree with uh, Sue's comments there. Curtis, anything to add
1: on this point?
2: I, I think they covered it extremely well. I agree with everything they said. Before that person leaves the office, before they leave your pharmacy, you have to have them inject. It's a problem that they're so concentrated on the needle. And to be honest with you, a needle is a totally foreign thing. It's not normal to stick yourself with a needle. That's why people get hung up on it. But once they've done it, then what happens is that now they can breathe a a sense of relief and now we have 31-gauge needles and now we have these wonderful, extremely sharp, uh, shorter uh, syringes and things like this. And I just think that we have better ways to help patients to get on to insulin and basal insulin is one of those ways to help them get on to insulin as opposed to going to basal bolus therapy right away. And I, I just think all these things together should encourage us a lot that insulin therapy is not like it was 10 years ago, for sure. Excellent points.
0: That concludes part one of this two-part Engaging the Experts interview. Part two of this interview focuses on future treatment options and roles for pharmacists in individualizing insulin therapy. You can find this interview on the activity website, which is www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash go forward slash type 2 or access it via iTunes as a podcast. Other educational resources on this topic are also available at the activity website.